you know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker. And my first feature film, The Alternate, is coming out sometime in 2022 to the masses. Yay! I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. And I'm currently in development on about five more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome writer AJ Bermudez on the show to talk about her writing process, how she makes life as a writer work, and what struggles she faces trying to get her work out there. We also have an article from IndieWire out of CinemaCon 2022 about stopping piracy in the theatrical exhibition of feature films, how filmmaking aids the mental health crisis. We also talk about Netflix posting its first subscriber loss in about a decade. We talk about a lot of things. And we also talk about what we're working on. But first, Arik, in this moment, right this second, how are you? Oh, I don't know. I feel weird today. I had family over for the weekend and my daughter didn't sleep very well. For the first time ever, we've had them over like, I think this is the third time where my wife's sister and her baby daughter have come over and we like move my daughter into our bedroom. And then the, you know, our niece takes the other room and two other times, no problem. Baby was totally cool, like slept fine, no, no issues. And then this weekend it was like just all kinds of problems. Like she just couldn't get to sleep. And then like she'd wake up like in the middle of the night and cry and cry. And it was hard. Like we didn't sleep very well either Saturday night or Sunday night. And then tonight, like last night, Monday night, she slept really well. Like it was back to normal again. And like now, like that everyone's gone. It just feels like, okay, back to normal life, back to routine. But I feel like hungover from like the weekend. And I only had like a beer, two beers, maybe. <laughs> but it's like, you know, when you're like so tired and like everything kind of gets upset in your daily schedule yeah. and then it's like, you just feel out of it. So I feel like I'm just sort of recovering and, you know, I did a little bit of work on movie stuff over the weekend, but not really because I was just with family the whole time. And like, I wrote a couple of things down for this new idea, but I've just sort of just been, yeah, since Friday or not really doing much. And it's been really busy at work and it's just been crazy, but. Yeah, I don't know. I'm still in love with my idea, and it's still like, I still think about it every day, and I'm still like jazzed on it. So I'm hoping that this week I'll be more productive and I'll get more writing done. But before I pass it back to you, I also wanted to give a shout out to Alex uh, Melanay, is a uh, filmmaker and a co worker of mine at Glass and Marker. And he's got this new, amazing art project up online right now that you can check out. It's like this interactive web, like, art thing. I don't even know. I guess art project's the best way to say it. It's called Deconstruction. I'm going to read a little thing about it just so everyone can get the... Because my description will be terrible. Let's just read his description. So, Deconstruction is a four-part collaborative multimedia art project chronicling Joyce Maloney's 25-year journey with breast cancer. Conceived by Joyce two years prior to her passing in 2020 and brought to life by her son, filmmaker Alex Maloney, along with seven contributing artists, Deconstruction uses creativity and humor to engage and inspire cancer survivors and their loved ones about living with and honestly talking about the disease. So, like, right before we canceled, or, like, put on hold Get Shorty, I had, like, reached out to my company and, like, hey, anybody got anything for Get Shorty? And Alex was one of the first people to reach out, and he wanted to, like, come on and talk about, you know, this project, because there's, like, all these little mini documentaries 
that are part of each of the the different art exhibits. And then some of them are documentaries or, or, or movies. It's, it's just like this huge mix of like, you know, like actual art that's been created, you know, and then like talking about the art. And then and he's, he's actually working on a feature length version of this uh, feature length documentary. So eventually we'll have him on to talk about that when that's ready. I really wanted to like just get this out into the world because I, I spent some time looking through the project and it's really amazing. There's this one art piece called Off With Her Tits, which is like a French Revolution sort of like thing with like Marie Antoinette, but like as Barbies, but like instead of like chopping off heads, it's like taking off the breasts and there's, it's just, it's a really incredibly powerful piece. So everyone check it out. And uh, yeah, Alex, great job with the project, man. It's amazing what he pulled together. Learned all these new school. He didn't know anything about web design and he like found web people to like help build this website. It's like, it's, it's impressive. So good job. We should share a website. Like, is there, oh, a, yeah. where can people find it? <laughs> He gave me the website. I'm like, I want to see this. This looks great. It is at, it's live right now. You can go to deconstructionart, one word, dot live. And that's where you can watch, like experience the whole show. It's all up there. Click through. It's hours and hours of content to look at. But um, but yeah, everyone should check it out right now. That's beautiful. Congratulations to Alex. How am I? I got the stomach flu from my son this weekend. And so I feel kind of the opposite of you where it's like you feel kind of like hungover and you're trying to like catch up and re recondition yourself, I guess, so to speak. And I'm like, the world is beautiful. I am walking around. I had a piece of bread this morning. It stayed down. Like <laughs> life is grand. So I feel very good. I got a little bit of work done. Other than that, what am I thinking about? I guess just what am I thinking about? We're doing lots of cast lists for the sci-fi film. We're doing some writing on the horror film. We're, I mean, we're in a rewrite of the 80s rom-com. We're just making making moves, Auric. Making moves in the movie-making world. That's what's happening. Let me ask you about the sci-fi project. So I know you mentioned off-air that you got a producer assigned on, which is great, a new producer. I think you have multiple producers on this project now, right? It's not just one. Well, he's going to be our lead producer, and then everyone else is probably going to be sequestered to like various peripheral roles. So what's so what's the thing now? Like your work, maybe we can cast lists, but is it actually like you're going to go to these casts and you're going to try to get them to sign on to attach themselves to the project? Like what's the next step? Yeah. So the producer we signed on until I get permission that I could talk about him. You're right. I should probably be a little a little stealthy about it. But he's a former sales agent. And so he's got friends in sales companies. And so what he's doing is he's just floating a list of our names to the sales companies to see if they can derive whether these people have value. And what's interesting to me is that I seem to be the filter. I have created a list of people that I want to work with based off of actors that agencies have recommended to us. And then just a general list that I've always had for this project. And then he keeps saying, I'm not thinking broad enough. And so we're going to have a new meeting with the casting director later this week to think how I could be more broad. And I think what he's saying is kind of what we, Ulrich, you and I talked about before, which is like, stop talking about the prestige festival art house actors, Liz, and like, who are the actors who may have some franchise value or genre value or even some like nostalgia value that you're not considering. And so we're going to look at 
the actors, the casting directors worked with. And then we're going to just brainstorm to add more names to the list. We've been doing this process for like two years, but we've never done it with someone with concrete relationships with sales companies. So mm. like, it feels like we're finally like doing what we're supposed to be doing. Nice. Well, I'm excited to hear how it goes and how it all comes together. Thank you. Well, are you also excited to celebrate Zoe Eisenberg? So Zoe Eisenberg is our newest Patreon patron. We want to support her. We want to wish her a happy Patreon birthday. Thank you, Zoe. You are wonderful. Thank you for joining our AMA that we had yesterday. For those of you who want to join things like AMAs or watch our staff meetings or see our private videos, not they're not too sassy, but they, they can get sassy if it gets you to donate on Patreon. <laughs> Head on over to patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. And thank you very much in advance. Thanks to all of you who are already part of the Patreon family. We also want to plug jambox.io. They are a royalty-free music and SFX company. They emphasize high-quality cinematic cues. You can use our promo code MMIH, that's all caps, MMIH, when signing up to get a 20% discount on your subscription. But without any more delay, here's our chat with AJ Bermudez. Hi, AJ. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Give us the elevator pitch for Nightingale. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Love the show. Yeah. So the, the elevator pitch for Nightingale from someone who loathes pitching is that <laughs> essentially in a reversal of fortune, a rising star surgeon who's sort of come from absolute flat nothing, very uh, sort of, you know, dark background. He's the first member of his family to sort of not be in prison or dead by his age. And he has just graduated from Johns Hopkins at the top of his medical class. And through a series of events, one of the first surgeries that he's hooked up with performing is on his roommate's uncle, a US senator. The surgery does not go well. And he plummets sort of in an instant from this meteoric hope to having to return to sort of the dark, gritty past that he's overcome and regroup and, and sort of begin again from zero. And in this place, in kind of a obverse sides of the same coin sort of way, we look at the Ivy League and underground gang organizations as sort of the same thing as he becomes the resident surgeon for the gangs of inner Baltimore. So that's Nightingale in a nutshell. Oh my God, I never like listening to pitches, but I actually very much enjoyed that <laughs> one. How many days did you shoot? So the short, you know, concept, that, uh, you know, the proof of concept piece that you can find online, I think it's still around, is something that we shot in four days. And then what was your rough budget for the short, if you can say? Yeah, good question. So I was fortunate enough to have a grant from the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. It had won an award with them that came with a $5,000 budget and some, some hookups. <laughs> It's always very important on those projects, what comes for free. So I'm very proud to say that we made that budget. I think we ended up with something that's pretty extraordinary looking for 5K. How did you come up with the idea? Yeah. So when I was living in New Haven, I, and I have a background as an EMT before I got into filmmaking, before I even realized filmmaking was a thing. Yeah. So I started EMTing when I was in Chicago. And then later, my, my partner was attending Yale and and we were living in this sort of fascinating proximity of the absolute 
apex of privilege. But if you've ever been to New Haven, the apex of privilege is also like four blocks away from one of the highest crime rates per capita in the country. And that sort of accepted dichotomy between worlds in both their similarity and in their contrast was really, really fascinating to me from a narrative standpoint. A lot of the work that I do sort of has to do with intersections of power and privilege, which also often brings place into the picture. So I trucked over to the, the central New Haven Yale University Library and brought back all of the fattest medical books that they had and went like surgery shopping and really started doing some homework and kind of just off to the races from there. And then how long did you spend working on the film from like writing the full script to creating the short and then having the short be out online? Yeah, great question. So I was marinating on the script for a while and I, I should mention it's actually a pilot script. So creating a proof of concept for a, for a series is quite unusual and it sort of had its own suite of challenges. But the, the script itself, I, I think, took after research a few months, like, like probably around a year or less to write. But the research is always super, super important to me and can be kind of hard to quantify. And then in terms of the actual process of creating the short, that happened pretty rapidly after the grant was received. I connected with a DP that I'd worked with in the past who I really loved. And we kind of just sat down. We made a shot list that we felt splendid about. And I, I think the entire process of actually composing the short, independent from the script, was probably a couple of months. Wow. Sub-question before we get yeah. to the, a real question. How long is the short? And like, what would be a proof of concept? What's a normal proof of concept length for a pilot proof of concept? <laughs> You know, it's so funny. I don't know if there is a normal answer because proofs of concept that are independently made for series are so rare. Mm. Here, I, I was so surprised and delighted that the ISA had sort of taken this shot with this grant on a series project. Because yeah. I, I do think there's a way to shoot a, a proof of concept or a short that is indicative of what a film will be that's simply not possible with a series. When you introduce a series, you're introducing a world, you're introducing a reality, sometimes multiple worlds. With a film, you can sort of like, you can tell a bit of the story, right? You can, you can do an arc, you can, you know, capture a scene. So tangents abound. I know, I know you guys are not afraid of tangents. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think for a, for a series, you know, this ended up being about five minutes long. But the, the reason is that it's structured a little bit more like a trailer. It feels like a very long trailer because it is kind of an introduction to a world. My understanding from doing you know, the film version of that is that you can sort of get away with anywhere between like eight and 15 minutes, 20 if you're feeling very ballsy, and, and you have like a nice standalone concept. But for something like this, you know, it's funny, we tried on a couple of different narratives that we thought might get close to sort of representing the world. And it all just felt really flat. It felt too contained. So we wanted to do something that feels a little bit more experimental and broad in the way that a trailer can be. I wasn't supposed to ask that question. So I'll ask the question I'm supposed to ask, which is yeah. compared to all the other <laughs> projects you've done, how difficult was this one? I feel like it was, it was more difficult in certain ways and easier in others, which is such a fucking cop out. 
I think a project is always exactly as difficult as the people who are involved. And this one had some really killer people involved. It's so funny. I just had, I just had a great meeting with uh, this production company, One Community, the other day. And they were talking about like, having a no-assholes policy and the importance of a no-assholes policy. And I really believe in that a great deal. Nightingale got really easy in the making because everyone was just so committed and extraordinary at what they were doing. It felt very, very, very much like a family. We didn't cast anyone who was... Let me, let me just say this. We didn't cast anyone based on how many Instagram followers they had. We cast based on how great people were going to be to work with. And we handled crew the same way. And it totally shows up in the bottom line. It shows up in cost. It shows up in time. It shows up in what it's like to be on set. So in that sense, it all went really, really well. There were, of course, challenges. We had someone sort of uh, had, to, had to bow out due to an emergency. And so we had to recast in like three hours before a very crucial scene in like pre-dawn hours. And it totally worked. And he showed up and he was lovely to work with. And we got to like build like a, you know, a fake bullet wound that like gushed from his abdomen. And he was like a lovely sport. So it all worked out fine. Cheating Los Angeles for the East Coast, also much harder than I had anticipated. Because <laughs> if you're in like, you're in fucking New York or New Haven or Baltimore or whatever, you can throw a rock and hit something that looks like that kind of like old, rich, mahogany, old money. LA gets really hard and cheating those palm trees out of the exteriors, <laughs> also very tricky. <laughs> so, so I have a question, like now that the short is done, the proof of concept for the, for the series, like what, what kind of success have you had? showing that to people and getting interest and in actually turning it into a series? Like, how has that experience been? Yeah, great question. It's definitely gotten me other work. I work mostly as a screenwriter, and people really love the, the script. So the proof of concept has sort of become a piece of the package that goes out that, you know, production companies or prospects get to take a look at as sort of a, you know, here's, here's like a basket of what this could be. I, I still would really, really love to see this, this project made. And I think one of the successes of the proof is that it, it does kind of give a taste of this world, even though, of course, you know, when Nightingale goes to press, it'll end up being a completely different, completely different everything, right? I mean, that's how series work. You, you know, you don't, you don't get to keep anything from the series proof of concept moving into the series in the same way that that might potentially work with like a, a low budget indie film. But just doubling down on Ulrich's question, like, have companies said like, oh, thank God you had that proof of concept or thanks so much? Like, did you sense like there that it helped or gave you an extra edge? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it has not necessarily given to be totally forthright. I think it has not given an edge so much in terms of selling the project, but it has given an edge in terms of communicating what the larger project is and what the artistic vision around it is. You know, with a pilot, even with like a pitch, it's, it's hard sometimes to like get that big picture vision. So I do think it's been really helpful in that way. I think people have gotten excited about it in that way. It sounds like it's also kind of helped you as a writer. Like, you know, people see that as part of your package and they're like, oh, wow, I'm like instantly drawn in to check out this person's material. It's like a kind of little bit of a teaser sizzle to pull somebody into you maybe i don't know is that, yeah. is that accurate <laughs> i think that's super super accurate and beautifully put way more articulate than i had <laughs> but yeah i mean i feel like you know whatever we create in whatever way 
it's always like, we're always in the woodwork, right? You're always sort of selling yourself, pitching yourself. Like what you create is, you know, to some extent you. And I don't know, do you guys feel like that's true as creators in your practice? Sometimes I don't pitch a lot. (laughs) I think is where I'm like, uh, the wall is going down there. I think people like watching things, especially if they're short, you know? So like, I think it's an easy way to get someone to like, you know, click on something and watch it if it's like a short little sizzle. And then whether or not that it turns into anything good from it, it might just be like a nice word about how they enjoyed it, which is usually Mm -hmm. what's happened to me. But I mean, that's better than nothing, you know? Yeah, totally. So I'm curious, like, do you have representation? Like, what's what's the status of your career right now? Like, where are you on your trajectory as a writer? Yeah. So I have two amazing managers over at Writ Large. Matt Dartnell and Michael Klassen are both absolutely fantastic. So yeah, I, I, have, I have management and not agent representation right now. When I go back even further, I am a doctor's daughter. So anyone in the medical field gets like it. my... Like I just grew up thinking that anyone in medicine was should be like on a was on a pedestal. Can you tell awesome. me about EMT to, to 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 writing like and and where writing kind of folded in throughout the process? Yeah, that's a great question, and I hope you'll answer the same question right after because I love that you grew up as the daughter of a physician. Yeah, for me, so I just gotten an undergraduate degree in philosophy, and basically the minute I got out, I was like, I have to do something with my hands. I have to do something visceral. I have to be involved beyond just like this like intellectual up here world. And uh, EMTing was something I'd been interested in for a long time. So basically right away, I like enrolled, I got going. And I found it so, so valuable to my practice as a writer. At the time, it hadn't even occurred to me that I could screenwrite. I was working as a playwright a bit, I just directed my first show in Chicago, but it had never, it had never been on my radar. I, I'm the first person in any kind of creative profession in any capacity in my family. You know, I don't come from connections or resources. It was just literally nothing that had ever occurred to me. But I did write a lot during those EMT years. You know, it is drama built in. But I think the main thing for me about the experience of EMT work is that it is extremis. But the most valuable aspect of that role is empathy. Sorry, what does extremis mean? I don't know what that means. Just like the, you know, the, the just the state of like constantly being mm. overextended, <laughs> too tired, too panicked, too stressed, too, you know, the the body's like physical state of like being just exceedingly exhausted or hungry or like not having what it needs. And also like being really up close to some really interesting individuals and, and, and people, of course. I, I think that the main thing that I took away from that, that period was very much that you can have empathy or, or die. Like you, you have to feel empathy. And I think that's so important for writers, especially to feel empathy at the core of whatever they're creating, both from a story standpoint and also as they you know, ultimately create jobs for other people in the industry, you, you know, you, you have to have other people top of mind. So for me, it was very much about combining the intellectual and the visceral, which is hugely important as a screenwriter. We often live like neck up, which is no good. <laughs> it was also about really kind of like learning like the necessity of empathy. And just to press that even further, I mean, was there a point where you were just like, 
I'm tired of living in this state. I want to go. I don't want to be an extremist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I want to write. I want to write like full time. Yeah. Or and I want to direct. Sorry. And we're not even talking about you as a director (laughs) either. So no, it's great. I I do identify mostly as a writer right now. But yeah, no, I, uh, I yeah, absolutely. There's a reason that EMTs, paramedics, medical professionals of all kinds have sometimes a very short lifespan within their roles. EMTs, like the turnover rate, it's very, very fast. You just see a lot of really ugly shit. And it's sort of the worst. It's also like 12 or 24 hour shifts. The pay is not spectacular. You know, you don't like OT doesn't kick in at 12, 12 hours. <laughs> or like maybe it does, but they're, you know, anyway, it's, it's worse paid than the film industry. I'll just say that. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's pretty miserable outside of being extraordinarily rewarding. It's pretty miserable. So yeah, I think, you know, it was something I'm extremely grateful to have done. It is something that I would even potentially consider returning to in in some capacity. I was sort of on the verge of being a helicopter paramedic when I left Chicago. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, right? Uh, So, you know, yeah, I, I will say though, it's not, yeah, EMTing is not something I like just recommend wholeheartedly to every person. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. One of my best friends in college was an EMT and then now cool. was a firefighter. So like, awesome. you know, I got to see that firsthand and hear the stories and like, you know, basically see him just burnt out every day, but, but loving it. Cause he loved the adrenaline. He loved, he loved living at that oh. level and still does, you know? So it's kind of funny. Good for him. Yeah. The, adre- the adrenaline's so good. It's so choice. <laughs> so, so to stay on this thread that Liz has got us on, like, Talk about how you made that transition, how you left being an EMT to become a writer full-time. Like, what was that like? Was it an overnight thing? Did it take many, many years? Like, did you do another career in between? Like, how did that work? Yeah, everyone is an overnight success after, like, many years of doing what they do, right? (laughs) After the EMT phase, I was living on the East Coast for a few years, still doing playwriting. And then my partner and I moved to Los Angeles several years back, a few years back. And it was something that felt extremely organic at the time coming out of playwriting and other kinds of storytelling. I'm also a fiction writer and had dabbled in film a little bit on the East Coast, but nothing like before coming to LA. And it sounds maybe dumb to say, but I, but I did receive one really, really great piece of advice from a mentor when I did a play that I had written and directed this was in Chicago, actually. And he said, it's great, but I think you've written a film. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he was like, well, all your scenes are like three to five minutes long. There are like, there's way too much. Like you've got, like, everybody has a gun. Like it's like, there are so many special <laughs> effects. It's fucking like your soundtrack is like bananas. Like he's like, this is, I think you've written a, a film. And I was like, huh. Okay. So when I went to LA, I was fortunate enough to connect with some people who, you know, were in the industry and sort of took my silly little hand in theirs. But also, you know, I realized that it's very, it's very much a cousin to playwriting in many ways, super different in other ways, but, you know, broad strokes, you can sort of reset the formatting settings in final draft and make a lot more money than playwriting. So continuing on this thread, So you're like, I'm going to write, I'm going to continue to write fiction, write plays, but I'm going to dabble more into screenplays. 
are you just cold querying reps? Are you submitting to competitions? Like what actually do you think was the jump start to calling it a career? Yeah, great question. So one of the first jobs I had in LA was that I started script reading for a production company. And it's, I mean, you know, script reading can be a total slog, but it's also so, so, so educational. And the the main producer had brought me into that role. He was impressed by the writing that I was using in my in my coverage, which was very snarky. And he asked, Do you want to pitch? Do you want to pitch on something? We're doing this project. Like this film is getting made, courting a few writers. Do you want to be in the mix? And I was like, Of course, yes. And they picked me. And so I ended up writing the film Blood, Sweat and Lies, which is a thriller. It's out somewhere in the world. I'm sure it can be streamed one way or another, although I don't I mean no, no pressure to. This is not a sales pitch. <laughs> and that was sort of the tipping point for me was, you know, scoring a, a feature gig. And it was so, it was so educational. And of course, you know, just a multitude of ways to understand how a film gets made beyond the quiet, solitary, lovely little process of writing by yourself. So much happens after that. It's crazy. <laughs> So when you scored the job writing the feature, was that through your management or did that lead to management? Like how did it all kind of work out that that came to be? Yeah, it's funny. That was actually completely agnostic of management. I hadn't even really thought about management yet, but I was entering competitions and I entered and and won something called the Diverse Voices Award, which is through We Screenplay. And that was what sort of landed me a lot of management meetings and, and got me my first reps. Oh, nice. Because I think we talked on the show in the past about is, is there value in these screenplay competitions? And it sounds, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you did achieve something out of it. Do you, would you say overall the competitions have helped or have some created no impact whatsoever or... Yeah. I mean, I would, of course, be lying if I said that competitions had not helped my career. You know, that's how I got the, the financing to make this Nightingale project. It's how I got representation. It's how it's also, in some cases, made me more money than the films itself. You know, I mean, the, the Page Award is a great one. They've been so generous. I was, I was fortunate enough to, to win the Page Award last year. And, and that's, you know, they've just been, they've been lovely. And I, I do believe in... <laughs> I don't know how to say this without sounding like a prick. I believe in winning screenplay contests, but I don't believe in screenplay contests writ large. I think they can be really, really divisive. I think that they can have a lot of problems for access. You know, I think that the buy-in of screenplay competitions can be really, really dangerous on a systemic level. So... I think they can be hugely, hugely productive for careers and for connecting people. And I'm very thankful to have had a positive experience in that space. I do think that in a subjective industry, chasing awards is never a good idea. And also, <laughs> and also that entering contests uh, is, is not always either possible or a net positive. Does that make sense? That yeah. Yeah, yeah. feels a bit well, I think it's the same for film festivals. I mean, just absolutely my experience. Yeah. 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 100%. I would love to hear more about yeah, like what's I mean, what has your experience been? Yeah. Well, just that like, you can take a film festival rejection to heart and it can get you off track. And it costs money. And you know, 
they were aware of nepotism and certain pipelines mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. flagging or lobbying certain films. And so that makes it a really uneven playing field. But at the same time, if you strike it at the right film festival, it could uh, completely transform your life. Totally. I agree 100%. Yeah. Ulrich, you, I feel like, have had... Well, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just, it was, it's interesting because, you know, sometimes when you do get into a film festival, after all that time and energy, and like you've gotten all those rejections and you've been, you know, whatever, I don't know, disheartened, I guess is the right word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hollowed get into out one, like the shell of a person. <laughs> and you're so excited that you got into this film festival and then you go there and then it's like not anything at all what you thought it was going to be and it's like you know three people show up to the film the organizers don't do a good job they mean they even don't play your movie correctly or your the schedule like there's all these problems that happen with film festivals mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so i feel like like what i've learned through through my experience is like don't take anything like liz is saying like too seriously and don't let it like inform you of what the worth of your art is because yeah. a, a film festival you know can't tell you that like only for really only you and the experiences that you see the film having on people can can tell you that, right? Like, you can't really... It can't be told by, you know, any kind of dollar amount or any kind of level of success. It's just through, you know, what the universe brings back to you, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The little messages that we get from people on Facebook or Twitter, you know, those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As long as they're not hate, because right. that happens too. No, who's sending you? No one's sending you hate no. messages on Facebook. Not Alrick. Not well, all right. but some people. You, yeah. <laughs> I've had I had someone write a treatise on my film and how it's not woke <gasps> enough on Amazon. So yes, I have received. <laughs> yeah. What was your What was your reaction? Like, I feel I feel like I've talked to filmmakers, and there's this whole gamut of reactions to like shitty press or like bad like fan reviews. What is your like What is your reaction? What well, do you do? In my first feature, there's a a boss character, a male, white male boss character who's very inappropriate. But I'm okay with that because he's inappropriate and it's obvious he's inappropriate and I'm not encouraging that kind of behavior. I'm just showing here's an inappropriate character. Mm-hmm. And um, someone felt that that was uh, a pre-Me Too type of content and that were it made after it was released in 2015. Were it released later, that would not pass the smell test. And so, anyway. <laughs> That's so and funny. did you feel, did you feel righteous indignation? Were you, were you? No, crushed? I was like, they're right. I'm so unwoke. <laughs> like, <laughs> I really just took it on. In true Liz fashion, I just blamed <sighs> myself and assumed they were right. But in relaying it to you, I think there's complexities to it, possibly. And I will, I'll, I'll let it go for AJ. My yeah, but and, and let it go, please. Yeah, <laughs> I'm honored to be a part of that. But also, yeah, it's so funny. I, I that's such a human response too. Like I, I don't know. Like I remember when this movie came out, and like there was this really like a bad review, like a really funny review, and it was it was only published in Italy. It was like an Italian magazine. The review was like in Italian, but like, but you, you know, translate, course, you like, Google translated it. Google it. translated it. Yeah, right. Yeah. I do that. <laughs> of course. I mean, we've, uh, we've all been down that rabbit hole <laughs> and it was so, it was so scathing to the point of absurdity that I was like, I have to like put this on the fridge door. Like I have to like print this out and just like live in it and like fucking celebrate it and just be like, yeah, like. First of all, the Italian translation of the movie, probably not great. But also, I, you know, I feel like if somebody really 
really react strongly in a way that is not correct, you sort of have to get comfortable in that proximity mm. to opposition. Yeah, right? it's, it's something to be proud of. Like, I kept up all my all my film school rejection letters. I put them on the fridge. Like, you know, you, did you? you just, oh my like, god, I love that. So I get, I get it, and I'm sure Ulrich. Have, did you ever wear something with a yeah. with a badge of honor? I, I, I don't know. I just feel like you know when you get a reaction, like a strong reaction, either positive or negative, you know you're doing something right. Mm. Like if you get someone to really hate your work, and like they really like they they feel so like move towards rage that they have to message you or write a comment or like shit on you in some way. Or an essay on Amazon.com reviews. Right. No, exactly. Randomly. That's the best. (laughs) You have arrived. (laughs) But, but it's, to me, it's like, it's almost as meaningful as if someone really, really loves your work. Like, I think the worst thing that you ever want when you make something is for everyone to be like, yeah, that was good. Yeah. Pretty cool. Good job. It's like, that is like the stab, like ice pick to the heart. Like, you know, you fucked up. If people are just shrugging and like smiling politely, then it's like, oh, you, you made something that no one gives a shit about either anger or, ha- or, or joy, you know? And it's like, I'd rather have both of those than, than none of either, you know? Yeah. I wanted to ask you about your, your process now. Cause like you have management, like, you know, you've been writing for a very long time. You write in all these different mediums, right? Like you do <laughs> books, you do movies, you do plays, you do everything. So, like, how do you decide, like, what to write? And, and is it something that only comes from here inside? Or do you take prompts? Like, what's your process? Ooh, yeah, I love a good prompt. And I definitely am always, always down for an OWA. But I... Wait, what's OWA? What's OWA? <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, an, open, an open writing assignment. So, like, uh. <laughs> here's, like, the movie's a train. It's moving forward. Do you want to be the writer of, of this train? Yeah. So that's great. Like, that's wonderful. Cause then it's like, it's built in and I love, I love skipping all the, the, the pitching shit, but yeah, my, my process obviously varies based on whether something already exists. Like, uh, you know, if it's an adaptation of something or if it's something that just comes from within, <laughs> but yeah, for me, you know, writing across media, I think is really, really beneficial for writers, no matter what kind of writing you do, no matter what kind of genre is your jam. I have benefited tremendously from just kind of sometimes workshopping something as like a short story or something that's a little bit more of like a character driven, you know, play scene. But also I really do believe in art as like listening, like what, like what kind of format does this story really want to be? Like what kind of, it maybe sounds corny, but like, you know, where will this story really like live? Like, like, where can I do all the things I want to do with it? You know, like I, I wrote this film where like an airport is like flooded with blood. Like that's not a play, right? I can't like, it's definitely not a play. I might be able to write it as a short story, but like, what do I get from that? Whereas sometimes a story has a lot of like very, very internal meditation that I feel like is really, really important to live in. Like, the literary fiction space. And then it sort of, you know, goes that way. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said it was like one of the first things you said, you said you loathe pitching. (laughs) But I mean, I want to poke that. Do do you really? Yeah. Or is that just kind of like an offhand remark? And then what, what is it about it that you hate? And then how do you get through that process if you hate it so much? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good question. You're a really good interviewer. Also, we're really I mean, great. We're really, great. <laughs> you really, you really know what you're doing. 
Also, if any producers are listening, I don't hate pitching. I love it. It's my favorite thing. <laughs> Call me anytime. <laughs> but no, I, I think that the same way that actors sometimes talk about auditioning as a completely different skill set, I don't love salesmanship. And there's something about pitching that always is a little bit of like, here's, you know, here's the sale. And I don't, I don't care for that dynamic of it. With that said, I do think that there is merit in having to articulate what you're up to within the bounds of a pitch. I think that being able to say, here's what this is about, literally, here's what this is about, big picture, here's where I see this going, like, here's the snapshot can be tremendously valuable. I don't love it as like a writer and creator. <laughs> I, love, I love to sort of allow things to take up as much space as they need or as is possible, I guess. And so there's something that feels a little bit pressury about you know, the pitch process that it's, it's like an audition and not acting, if that makes sense. It's not quite doing the thing. It's talking about the thing. That is a, a bit of a turnoff, but I do recognize its necessity as part of the process. I wanted to ask more about uh, open writing assignments and like, you know, have you done a lot of those? Like, like, have you had success with that ever? Or is it just something that you do and like, you kind of regret it later? Like, what's, what's the experience? (laughs) Yeah, it's weird. You know, there's definitely less, in my experience, at least, this may not be true for everyone, but there's definitely less creative control in an open writing assignment, which can be both good or bad, right? Like, so in a really blunt way, like, you know, when you do an open writing assignment and you're not writing, say, on spec, like, you know, it's going to work out. Like, there's a contract before you do anything. And that's excellent. That is great. But you also sort of belong to the process in a way that you don't if everything starts with you. So I'm okay with it. It's like, you know, I mean, it's like getting on the train, you know, mid transit versus like starting the train or conducting the train or whatever metaphor is ever so I like it okay, but I think, you know, the first time I, I did an OWA, I, I wish that I would have known more about how little everything was going to have to do with, with, with me, with the script, because I do think that it can be a different experience for a screenwriter. I have two specific small questions for you. Okay. One is, I, know, I noticed that my favorite movie of the year thanked you on IMDb pig oh yeah and i just want to know why tell me everything (laughs) (laughs) michael's one of my best friends he and i met in new haven and then he actually we i shouldn't even say this actually i think i can say it because i think you can't find it anymore he and i neither of whom are actors were in a, a, a mutual friends short film together and that's how we met and we became very good friends and like sort of have been swapping writing for like the last eight years or something. I actually, I lived with him briefly when I first moved to LA. My, my partner and I and Michael like lived together and another roommate lived together in Culver City right after we moved to LA from the East Coast. He's amazing. Yeah. That script is a beautiful, beautiful script. And he did a really tremendous job with it. And it was really a pleasure to read kind of multiple iterations of the script. We would like go like drink and like read, you know, you know, okay. scripts. And yeah, it, and it's been beautiful from the very first draft. That is very cool. And then the other it's great question, film. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. The other question is why initials? Like, is there some reason why you're going by your initials? Yeah, I, I prefer it on a, on a base level, you know, 
aesthetically, but I also think that, you know, having a non-gendered name is something that's important to me as a, as a creator. I think that not only is it something that is important to me individually, but it also is something that I could build metrics around in terms of, of outcome. My given first name is Amanda. My my middle my middle name starts with a J, and so AJ is something that I've like colloquially gone by for a long time. But going by AJ professionally is something that was a very very intentional <laughs> intentional choice. It would be lovely for me to not even consider the professional dynamic of that, but I would be lying if I said that I hadn't. I've seen it before, which is why I asked. And yeah, it's ridiculous that we have to kind of anyway. It's- it's yeah. smart and ridiculous that you are getting ahead of the game and, and battling it in that way. But Yeah, I, I think that the onus should never be on the creator. But I do think that, you know, we're still in an industry that is owned in a certain way by a historical paradigm that is very much male driven. It's very Eurocentric. It's very, it's very white. Anything that I think you can do to remove a barrier for yourself or someone else is a good idea. It's a bummer, but it's a good idea. What's funny is that I did the exact opposite. It has not helped me at all. (laughs) And my last name is Manischel. And I always say I'm Liz Womanischel because I think that's so funny. (laughs) Um, It is so funny. Yeah, but then you're just like, well, now I can't like... It's not strategic is what I'm saying, but it's fine. Yeah, you can't walk it back, but it is... I think it's worth the joke. I think whatever work you have lost based on the Womanischel joke, 100% 100% worth it. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I often sacrifice things for the joke, so I'm, I'm with you. And you're doing the right thing. <laughs> so what, what are you working on now? Like, like, are you doing, like, just doing spec work? Are you taking in, like, jobs that you get, like, you pitch on? Like, what, what is your, like, kind of day-to-day as a writer at this point? Yeah, a little bit of both. Some column A and some column B. I'm working on a couple of new spec pro- projects that I really love. Unfortunately, every spec project that I take on that I'm really attracted to is extremely complicated in terms of research and logistics and just scope. I wrote this feature last year called ICON, that um, like lowercase i, capital C, that everyone loves, but it is like a cryptocurrency-centric revenge thriller heist film. Like it is like more expensive. <laughs> Then like it's it's the most expensive film ever written and it is so beautiful and everyone loves it and it's gotten me work, but it's like every film that I write on spec is sort of that. Like I, I'm writing like a, a spy thriller set in the sixties right now that is like equally heavy on research and complexity. And I'm just like, why do I do these things to myself? Although I did I just found out that this really amazing residency in Morocco, the the Nawafez residency is gonna like pay me to come like work on this screenplay in Morocco for a couple months this summer. So that's, that's good news. But uh, yeah, so that's what I'm working on spec wise. And then yeah, pitching, you know, pitching for a couple projects right now, both film and, and series. I'm attached to one project right now. But yeah, it's, you know, it's always a little bit of a jumble of, you know, what do you do that is going to excite you, whether you're jumping in at the top of the process or midstream. And so I, I try to let that be a, a barometer for, for what gets taken on. All right. Well, you're almost home free because we're at the final six juncture. Good. You're almost home free. Yeah. Sure. 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 (laughs) 
What's the first film you ever made? How do you feel about it now? You could talk about it in any capacity, director, writer, producer, but just something that you made could be a school project, whatever. How do you feel about it now? The first film I ever made, I was seven and it's called When Good Backyard Campouts Go Bad. It is a horror film, one location. (laughs) I felt really good about it. I still feel really good about it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we were talking earlier about how how you sort of anchor yourself, like what you sort of measure success as. And I think that some of the best filmmaking advice I've ever received is to not be swayed by what other people are up to or what you're told. And also to, to, to have a larger vision of, of what you're doing. We were talking about like, you know, Facebook messages and and bad reviews and all of that fun stuff, awards. And the best, the best advice I've ever received is to not really like pin your career to any of those things. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? (laughs) I have been told multiple times not to write characters of color or characters of different backgrounds in the same relationship. Yeah. 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 All the bad, honestly, the worst advice I've always received is like super regressive advice that is nested as a commercial directive. I know that's like, sorry, I took us to a dark place, but that's the fucking industry. We got to talk about it. Just remembering every time anyone told me, like, oh, yeah, don't don't cast people of color as a lead in your movie. That's not going to sell very well. I've heard that so many times. And it's just like, Fuck yeah. Good do exactly. it anyways. <laughs> exactly. And I and it's so funny. When I first was getting repped, I was going on this fucking water bottle tour, like having all the meetings. And one way that and I hate how many people it winnowed, but one way that I winnowed like reps was the way they responded to Nightingale. And more than one person was like, Oh my God, we love this script. It's so beautiful. It's incredible. But who will you cast for the lead? It's just a it's just a, you know. It's an intelligent 20-something Latinx lead. And they're like, oh, who will you cast for the lead? And I'm like, You're that's like, the fucking point, actor. dude. That's like, right, a great actor. <laughs> let's fucking, yeah. let's, let's find someone. Are you serious? And, and, and uh, that was extraordinarily disheartening very, yeah. very early on. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to get another really bad Italian review. <laughs> just fill the fridge door. <laughs> no, I, you know, it might sound corny, but my goal ultimately is to create more opportunities for other people. I would love to arrive at a place in my career where I can start to shift that that paradigm, you know, a, a little bit. I think as a screenwriter, it's interesting. As a director, it's interesting. In other roles, you know, producerially, you know, whatever do in film, it's interesting because it's always sort of a collaborative medium. There are a lot of people involved, and I think who we not only put on screen but have in the making process is tremendously important. And I would love my, my real goal career wise is to be in a position of creating opportunities for people. That's, that's it. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? I would tell myself about screenwriting sooner. It's so much fun making films, you know, making movies is hard and also sometimes great. I would, (laughs) that's what I would tell myself. (laughs) And then last question, is making movies hard? Yeah, it's super fucking hard. <laughs> <laughs> you were so worried about swearing and it only came up once. So the last question, like this is... Oh, I feel like I swore before that. Did you? We can, 
Uh, we can check. They, they, they might be in there. I yeah, don't know. We'll, can we sneak one in? Like, like we'll just say, say a few swear words and we'll just pop them in throughout the entire episode. <laughs> right. Hang on. <clears throat> right. We'll do it like a like an ADR session. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Did you get it? Yeah, we got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Jeff, you got that? You'll just throw them in there. Okay. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff's our editor. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. You're doing you're you're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> <laughs> he really is, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, sell your wares. Tell people how they can support you. Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty bad at social media, but you can find all my, my links and such at amandajbermudez.com. And I do... When, how, uh, what's your turnaround on episodes? When will this come out, Ballpark? Oh, God, don't ask me. <laughs> a Jeff, few probably weeks. <laughs> a few weeks, yeah. Oh, okay, cool. good answer. Well, then it's too early, but I do, but I do have a book coming out in september or october of this year that i'm i'm very excited about so when that happens if folks listen to this episode and mark their calendars my first collection is coming out yeah this fall yeah congratulations yeah thank you stories no one hopes are about them oh nice Arik, what do you remember about our chat with AJ? I remember she was lovely and that I was one of those people that you could just talk to forever. She was just such great energy and such just very positive and then very honest and open too. I remember we talked a little bit about process and we talked a little bit about, you know, where she's at in her writing career. And it kind of looks like she's at this level where she's like just starting like ready to like kind of take off, you know, but it's, it's really exciting just to kind of see what a writer's life is like and, you know, hear those details. But to be honest, it was a, a, a while ago with this conversation. So it's all kind of like a fuzzy little memory of that wonderful, lovely conversation. But what about, what, what about you? What do you remember? I feel like this is feeling like a confession. After we had the chat with AJ, I was so enchanted by her that I contacted... I am producing the debut feature of, a, of an artist named Kyle Hausman-Stokes. It's called Dead Friend Zoe. And it's this wonderful, wonderful film. And he's been looking for a co-writer for a long time. And as soon as we got off the chat with AJ, I told Kyle, I was like, you got to meet this woman. Like, she's just wonderful. And just check out her writing. And we had been working with ISA. We posted an ad on the International Screenwriters Association website looking for a co-writer. And AJ came to us via ISA as a recommended guest. Anyway, Kyle and AJ connected and we hired her. And she's now co-writing. And they've been working on the script for the past month. So I just wanted to mention, like, this meeting was so pivotal to me that, like, I was like, I want to in some way work with work with this person. Like, that's how exciting she was. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Magic happening right here on Making Movies is Hard. Things are coming together. Dreams are being made into realities. It's fantastic. We'll talk about dreams being crushed in some way. Here's our article <laughs> article talk. I love these articles. It got me so excited because I read this, this CinemaCon one last night from IndieWire and I was like, you motherfuckers, you such sons, of, sons of bitches. I just think it's so funny. Like the way they're trying to stress, like twist, twist this thing about piracy and about mental health to be like, yes, yah, yah, rah, rah theaters because it'll stop piracy and it'll help mental health too if you go to the theaters and not watch things at home, you dirty person who likes to watch things from home. It's like, I don't know. I'm all for theaters. I love theaters. I love the theater experience. I just thought this was like such like one of those keynotes that you see at an event where it's like such a jack off party. You know, they're just like talking about 
Like they're basically trying to celebrate themselves and talk how great theaters are and the theater experience and like, we do so much. We are like curing the mental health crisis each time someone goes to the movie theater and piracy wouldn't exist if no one did dirty streaming. And it's like, that's totally not true. Like the piracy has been around for many, many years and it's not just cam footage in the theater. Like people do figure out how to get these, these high res versions when they're only theatrical releases. I just thought it was just like everyone patting themselves on the back, how great we are. Everyone go to theaters. And then you read the, the Netflix one. And it's so funny because it's like, they're hurting too. They're dying. They're, they're getting killed because of all these different streamers that are happening. It's everyone's hurting. The theaters are hurting. Like the big, big, you know, companies that were, had all the slice of the pie before, like Netflix, like they're hurting because like there's HBO Max, there's Paramount Plus, there's AMC Plus, there's, what am I missing? Peacock. Peacock. Dis- Disney, <laughs> Disney Plus. It's Apple. everything. This Apple. <laughs> it's so many different ways you can watch your movies now. It's insane. So, of course, the market share is going to go down. Of course, people aren't going to be eating as much as they were before because there's just so many more places for everyone to go. There's so many different avenues. So, like, this whole thing of numbers being down and everything is something that we're going to continue to see. But it's not because people are watching less movies. It's just because they're watching them different ways. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. But I don't know, Liz. What did you think of all this? Or did you have a, <laughs> What's your reaction? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have lots to say. I, you know, I want theatrical to work, but I also actually want windows to shrink. I don't want longer theatrical windows because if you think about it from the indie filmmaker's perspective, if they're there to support, because they're the ones that made the movie, like this conversation completely cuts out the filmmaker. If the filmmaker then has to sit through the entire longer theatrical window and then the streaming window and support and market and be an intricate part of marketing this film, it just contributes to our exhaustion. So I want windows to shrink. I want them to overlap, but I want theatrical to be incentivized in some way, which is why I'm such a big fan of like things like Alamo Drafthouse or lounge seating or shorts playing before features and things like that. But I love that this CinemaCon article references Denis Villeneuve. And it's like, so Denis says, you know, of Dune says, I'm worried about the theatrical window getting too short and shorter and shorter. I'm a strong believer that we should go back to a theatrical window that's as long as possible. It is something precious, something unique. And you're like, well, you know, you're probably being paid to travel with the film for special event engagements. And you're being paid like a pretty penny to direct these massive, wonderful movies. Like what, again, what about the indie filmmaker? Who knows what kind of a piece of the pie they're going to get from theatrical? And then what like expenses are built on top of that? And then again, like streaming, what piece are the, it, it just feels like we're not even talking about the filmmaker's pocketbook or energy level in this conversation. And I agree, it's this little party where theatrical exhibitors are trying to paint their role in the pandemic to be one of therapeutic, which is, I mean, art is therapeutic, but it's not just theatrical exhibitors who are the cause of mental health relief in some way. Yeah. So yeah, it was stupid. Going to the movies will help you and will make your day better, but it's not going to cure you of the massive uphill battle we have in the mental health crisis. And yeah, and then Netflix needs to figure out its model. Completely agree. Yeah. Interesting to see what um, the whole world of filmmaking and and not filmmaking, but like film watching looks like in like five years from now. Like. Like, will there still be so many streamers? Like, will, will it, or will there be more streamers? Will it, will it be that every, ch- like, network has their own streaming company and that we just, like, subscribe to the ones that we care about? Like, 
Is there a change coming in this at some point? Like, or is this just like kind of the road we're on? Like, will theaters like start doing really fun things that we like keep on talking about, like to make it a, a bigger movie night? Like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. But with the remaining time we have, I wanted to ask you, Liz, like you talked a little bit about like what you're working on right now, but like, like, are you, like, cause you're writing that movie with Amy. Like, what does your writing look like? Are you, are you actually on pages now? Are you like getting like through the script? Do you have deadlines set for yourself on like when the script's to be done? Like, what's your process on getting your movie written? Amy and I meet twice a week. I hope Amy doesn't care that I'm telling everyone all our secrets. Amy and I meet Tuesday morning and Thursday morning, which means that I write my pages Monday night by 9 p.m. because she's on the East wow. Coast and she sends me her pages by, you know, Monday and Wednesday night at, at 9 p.m. And what we do is we read our pages before we meet on Tuesday and Thursday. We talk about them. We give each other feedback. We're probably 20 or 30 pages in. We're on sequence three and four right now. I couldn't write this weekend. So I, you know, sent her an apology text last night and we just met anyway and shot the shit about Titan, which I saw on Friday. Basically, we spent a half hour talking about Titan today instead of our film. But in terms of just making sure we get things done, yeah, we produce pages if we can every week. We talk about them, we give feedback, and then we watch content that we think is appropriate. I think I started a deck at one point, but this is going hand in hand with me having weekly meetings with this pod filmmaking collective that I've been talking about, where we're also building, you know, what's the structure of our slate filmmaking model and what does ownership look like? What do contracts look like? What do, what does fundraising look like? So in some fashion, I'm talking or thinking about this movie three to four hours, maybe five hours a week. Yeah. And to you, like, cause you're on this other sci-fi movie that you're like, you know, doing the cast list for, what is, like, what is a primary project? Like, is, is there one that like is above the other or is it just like you have all these things that you're doing and they all just like require a different amount of your time to work on? Yeah, I don't think one is rising above the others right now. I mean, so to be super, I mean, so I'm in the, de- I guess, development on a almost locked script by Natalie Higdon called Hold Me Now. That's the 80s rom-com. There's Thin Blue Veins by Josh Evans, which we were in talks with a horror production company. There's the, I Can Change, the sci-fi feature where we have a casting director, name, talent, attachment, a fancy producer, but no money. And then there's this horror film that I'm co-writing that we're completely throwing out all previous models and using a system of disruption to make this movie where we're not looking at cast lists from sales agents. We're casting whoever we want and we're financing it however we want and we're rebuilding investor contracts and there's animation in it and there's an interpretive dance sequence and there's just a lot of weird shit in it. And All of them are important. And I think, unfortunately, I have to kind of flow with wherever the wind is blowing, so to speak. So if like I get an email from the horror production company who wants to talk about thin blue veins, then my focus is there for that day. I'm I'm learning how to divide my focus. And it was a lot harder when I had one more project, but I dropped that project a few months ago, I think, which we talked about. Yeah. So there's nothing that like, there's no one project where you're like, like it's like in your heart, like the thing that you need to make right now. It's just sort of like you have all these things that you love equally and you're like, where can I push them this one forward at this moment, this one forward at that moment? And like you're kind of working on them all. They're all really, really important for many different reasons. And I, I would be boring for me to go into it. I'd say like the one project that I feel like I have to make is something that I'm is a a musical that I've talked about that's going to come out in a few years because it's about the same things we talk about in the show, like imposter syndrome and fame and why artists do what they do. And that feels like 
the question that I want to explore, that I want to put like everything into. But these other projects I, I adore. I adore and there's heat behind them. And there's no heat behind the personal film that I'm in development so on. The other one, is that already written? Or is it like you're writing that one as well? during? Oh, this? I just got an outline on the other one. Like we're in the wow. outline phase. Yeah. Wow. Very beginning. You got a lot going on. <laughs> it's so funny because like, you know, I've been thinking about myself and, and like how I work and you know, like b before I had this new idea, like I was working on this other thing that I really liked and everything, but you know, I could tell that it was like only only so much energy like only so much of my passion was going into that and it was like i was i was working on it and i was you know making progress but i feel like with this one it's like i already have an idea for a poster i have an idea for a trailer i've got like you know you know the, this whole thing for it and it's like this energy that i feel like compelled to focus on and it's like sort of the same thing with the alternate like i had this energy and this this obsession with the movie and it's like i just just never let go of it and then like eventually I was able to make the movie and so I'm just wondering for myself like could I do what you're doing and like work on multiple things at once and then like just and make anything happen or is it really that I just need to find the one pick the one and then that's the thing that I work on in, until it's made like I don't know I'm just I'm, I don't know the answer to for myself even you know I'm just trying to figure that out but I keep on getting the same advice you know like to, to have multiple things going so that like you know if one thing fails you, you have another project but it's like you know it's kind of hard for me to like have that kind of energy for, for everything you know it's only really one that I really care about you know <laughs> well, okay. So point one is bandwidth. So I remember I worked for this woman who was a producer, but she also was a prop maker for like wow. the TV show Greek. And I would help her with both. And I'd help her make props and I'd help her do her producing work. And, you know, I'd support her in this way. And I remember just thinking about all the things she had on her plate and being very like turned off and kind of like confused and, and, and like thinking, well, surely she doesn't have enough time or energy to do everything. But she found a way, like she figured out a way to put everything on her plate. And there's an efficiency, you know, I'm obsessed with time. Like there's an efficiency to your day that you may not be tapping into quite yet that might mm -hmm. allow you to feel like you have more time to put things on your plate. So I think one of those things is like when you became a parent, you probably didn't think you had the schedule to be a parent, but you found a way and you could probably find a way to find more projects. So like bandwidth is one thing, but then passion is another. Like I'm incredibly passionate about all the projects that I'm attached to. I don't see them. You know, that's why I dropped one of them because I wasn't passionate about it. I don't see mm. them as just like token projects. I've invested like two years of my life into every single one of them so far. So they mean a lot to me. And but not at first, you know, I think 80% of filmmaking is like the collaboration and the assets and the development process and who you're going to work with isn't just the script. So like if you were to find a script that you that you're excited enough by, it will only grow, I think. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I just wonder, like, at some point, like, do you have to pick at some point? Like, no. like, which one's going to be made first? Like, do you have to just like be like, okay, this That's is a great the one. problem to have. Who has that problem where they have to pick? I mean, like, usually the system picks for you and says, like, right. here's the money for this one. And that's probably what's going to happen to you, I think. I think it's yeah. like the money will come for one of them. And it could be the one that's the least developed of all of them. Right. But at one point, one's going to get money. And then that's going to be like the thing that you have to put 
everything into and then the other ones will be pushed back you know that's that's my guess but and even if they're pushed back because i have these kind of like everyone i'm working with knows i'm working on other projects and i think they always know that if one project goes the other projects benefit because i'm not oh yeah right so it's like and i always i always feel like i i worry that i'm like insulting or not showing enough love for one project (laughs) versus another but the idea is like actually if the machine grows then yeah it trickles down to everyone yeah because the more movies you make that are successful the easier it's going to be for you to make more movies but i just want to go back to your situation because it almost feels like you feel bad like you're not doing enough and it's like you have a child under one you're you haven't even released your first feature you're like right about to release it like you're just signed the contract like like can we have a reality check for you just a little bit which I say with love. <laughs> like you already have a feature idea that you're excited about and you work a full-time job. Like I don't think you need to worry at this moment. And yeah. There's a lot of people, but it's like I have a 3-year-old. I've I've and I'm not that you're comparing yourself to me, but I think people who have multiple projects in the coffer, they're playing in a different type of numbers game than you are right now. And maybe you right. choose to play that game, but you don't have to. Yeah. I mean, I, I got, I've got like a couple of things. I mean, I'm working on multiple things. It's just like, I just worry. I don't know, but I'm, wor- I'm just curious like how it's going to play out for me, you know? And I think like seemingly it's it's going to be the same. Well, I just, I just have this guess that's going to be the same thing with like, that I was with the alternate that like, I'll just become obsessed with with one of them and then that's the one that I'll do everything in my power to make you know and eventually it'll be made you know yeah. but maybe maybe something else will happen who knows you never know life's crazy I'm not sure but that's what, fantastic what, what, to have that kind of passion to get like sucked in yeah. to that way that's only good I just hope I don't lose it you know like I think like that's like I'm sure you've had this before where you've had an idea you're so excited about it and then one day it's just gone yeah and so yeah I just hope that doesn't happen to me that it doesn't go away It's it's funny. I'm looking at my desktop and there's a final draft document called A Christmas Dream. I wrote a Christmas outline for a Christmas movie because I was like, damn, I really want... That's like my bucket list is like a Hallmarky Christmas (laughs) list, a Christmas movie. I really want to like write or direct one. And I was so excited about it and I vomited it all out. And then now I could care less. It just sits on my desktop, right? That Mm -hmm. the passion does wane. You're totally right. But you've talked about on the show before. It's like, what is the what is the project where it doesn't fall to the wayside? Right. Or that you can get re- re-excited about it again after a break or something. You know? Yeah. Anyways, I think this is a good place to end. You can always send us a question, comment, or suggestion to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. If you didn't like this little conversation Liz and I had, that, that was, you know, you can suggest your own and we can have a different conversation. Whatever you guys find interesting, let us know. And if it's not interesting, we won't do it. So, you know, doesn't mean we'll just read anything you send us. We won't do that. You can also leave us a review on iTunes if you love the show. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. Hey, all this is producer Eric. As Liz and Ulrich have mentioned before, I run a free short film showcase the first Tuesday of every month at the Formosa Cafe in Hollywood. This is a monthly meetup for filmmakers, directors, actors, writers, producers, and film fans of all types to come together and share their work. We screen six films per show, followed by a happy hour with the filmmakers. The Formosa Cafe is a full bar and kitchen, so grab a bite and share a drink. If you're a filmmaker in the LA area who would like their work screened, then feel free to send me a link on social media. I can be found on all platforms at Tom's Funny, T-O-M-S, Funny, or email me at eric at erictoms.com. The short can be any genre, but must be no longer than 10 minutes in length. The screening is 100% free to filmmakers and audience members alike, so come on out the first Tuesday of every month at 8 p.m. to the Night of Shorts Night at the world-famous Formosa Cafe, located at 7156 West Santa Monica Boulevard, Hollywood, California. Now back to the show.
should also check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA, which is a wonderful organization. They've actually done a lot of great things for the show, uh, you know, connecting Liz to a writer who she's now working with. That's amazing. The organization is designed to connect writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer, including publishing your logline to a network of industry professionals, consultation courses, contests, and their top 25 writers lists. So head over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today. Thanks to AJ Bermudez for coming on the show and to the ISA team for making the introduction and connecting us. Thanks to our amazing producer, Eric Toms, and thanks to our editor, Jeff Freimuth, for doing the editing. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you in one week's time. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> one week's time from now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>